to today's episode of Her Voice Echoes. I'm Kim Kapuska, your host. Today we'll be hearing the story of Amelia de Moulin. Amelia was a French dressmaker who came to the U.S. in 1899 when she was 18 years old. She's 25 when uh, this story was taken down. It was published in an anthology called The Life Stories of Undistinguished Americans that was published in 1906 by Hamilton Holt, who was the editor of a liberal New York paper called The Independent. So Amelia came to the U.S. in 1899 when she was 18. She had uh, worked in Paris in a, sounds like a really uh, fashionable dress shop for four years. So she had experience when she came here. And if you listen to our podcast that included the Polish sweatshop girl and the farmer's wife, you'll see a real contrast in the wages that Amelia has compared to Sadie, who worked in a sweatshop. But their hours were similar, and some of their early life experiences were similar as well, with deaths of of parents and, in some cases, caretakers. So with that, here is Amelia's story, and I hope you enjoy it. I was born in a country district of France, on the edge of a great forest about 150 miles southwest of Paris. When I first came to identify myself, I was a little red-cheeked, roly-poly, black-haired, black-eyed baby of four years or so, tumbling about under the trees trying to gather faggots. My father had been one of the men in charge of the forest, and when he was killed by the caving in of an earth bank, the great man who owned the estate on which we lived allowed my mother to continue gathering firewood as before, which was to us quite a valuable privilege, as fuel is scarce and dear in France. Our cottage was of stone. It was about 200 years old, had a tiled roof, though most of the cottages of the neighborhood were thatched. The walls were nearly two feet thick, and all the front and sides were covered with ivy. There were only two rooms on the ground floor, but overhead was a large loft, with the floorboards loose on the beams. My brothers, Jean and Francois, slept in the loft, which they reached by a ladder, and sometimes the straw from their bed would come sifting down through the cracks above. The large room on the ground floor was... Kitchen, dining room, sitting room, and parlor. It had a great hearth where a big iron pot hung on a thick chain, and both chain and pot were relics that had long been in my father's family. The only furniture here was a bench, four wooden stools, and an old table, and the only picture on the plastered walls was a print of the Madonna. The other room was mother's bedroom, and I and my sister Madeline had a cot in the corner. In comparison with some of our neighbors, we were looked upon as wealthy. Seeing that mother owned the house and field of two acres, and that she had about $400 saved up and buried in an old iron pot in the earthen floor of the little cellar, which was under the middle of the big room, and reached through a trap door. Mother was a large, stout, full-blooded woman of great strength. She could not read or write, and yet she was well thought of. There are all sorts of educations, and though reading and writing are very well in their way, they would not have done mother any good. She had the sort of education that was needed for her work. Nobody knew more about raising vegetables, ducks, chickens, and pigeons than she did. There were some among the neighbors who could read and write and so thought themselves above mother, but when they went to market, they found their mistake. Her peas, beans, cauliflower, cabbages, pumpkins, melons, potatoes, beets, and onions sold for the highest price of any, and that ought to show whose education was the best, because it is the highest education that produces the finest work. Mother used to take me frequently to the market. We had a big dog and a little cart. Mother and the dog pulled the cart. One can see hundreds of them in any French market town today. 
The cart was filled high with fowls and vegetables, and when I was very small, I sat on top, holding our lunch, which was wrapped in a napkin. It was always the same, a half loaf of black bread to be eaten with an onion. I was inclined to be particular, and sometimes I would not eat the black bread, which was hard and sour. But Mother would just lay it aside and say that I would go to it before it would go to me, and I always did go to it. Except one day, when Mother got impatient with me for being sulky and gave my bread to the dog. Hero, who ate it, like the greedy thing he was. I boxed his ears for that, but he only smiled at me. He was a big black Newfoundland fellow, very good-natured. We used to reach the marketplace about half past five o'clock in the morning. And when we got there, Mother would back the cart up against the sidewalk and begin to shout about the chickens, eggs, and vegetables. All the women with the carts were shouting and all the dogs barking, and there was great business. The market women were a big, rough, fat, jolly set who did not know what sickness was, and it might have been well for me if I had stayed among them and grown to be like Mother. They had so much hard, healthy work that it gave them no time to worry. One time in the marketplace, I saw a totally different set of women. It was about eight o'clock in the morning when some people began to shout, Here come the rich Americans. Now we will sell things. We saw a large party of travelers coming through the crowd. They looked very queer. Their clothes seemed queer, as they were so different from ours. They wore leather boots instead of wooden shoes, and they all looked weak and pale. The women were tall and thin like bean poles, and their shoulders were stooped and narrow. Most of them wore glasses or spectacles, showing that their eyes were weak. The corners of their mouths were all pulled down, and their faces were crossed and crisscrossed with lines and wrinkles, as though they were carrying all the care in the world. Our women all began to laugh and dance and shout at the strangers. It was not very polite on our part, but all the travelers certainly did look funny. I was about six years old when that happened, and the sight of those people gave me my first idea of America. I heard that the women there never worked, laced themselves too tightly, and were always ill. I would have grown up like Mother and her friends, but that I did not seem to be good at their work. I took to reading, writing, sewing, and embroidering, and I did not take to gardening and selling things. Well, I cried when they killed pigeons or chickens. So I sent to Paris to live with my Aunt Celestina, a dressmaker employed by one of the great establishments. My aunt, though my mother's sister, was not at all like her. She was small, thin, and pale, with quick black eyes in a snappy sort of way, though she was quite good-hearted. It was not very long before I found out just how the fashions are made. There are three great establishments in Paris that lead all others. These have very clever men working for them as designers of cloaks, hats, and dresses. These designers not only know all the recent fashions, but also all the fashions that there were in the world hundreds of years ago. They have books full of pictures to help them. And what they try to do is make the women change their dresses just as often as possible. That's the reason they keep changing the fashions. Each time they make a new fashion, they make it just as unlike the one that went before it as can be so that things that are six months old look ridiculous. And the women all over the world who are trying to follow the fashions put the old dresses away, even though they have only been worn once or twice. One time the sleeves are big at the shoulders and narrow at the wrists, and at another time narrow at the shoulders and big at the wrists. One time the dress is tight at the waist and another time loose, and there are all sorts of changes in the size, shape, and hang of the skirt. And in addition, all the changes of fashions in colors and materials. The keynote of fashion making is change. For the women all over the world are watching Paris and they say, you might as well be out of the world as out of the fashion. The greater the changes, the more dresses sold. 
When these great milliners have decided on the new fashions, they get some of the best-known women in the city to lead off with them. These women are given magnificent costumes of the newest design to wear, and in some cases are even paid for wearing them. Of course, these women are great beauties, and when they appear in the parks or at the opera, all the other women envy them, and all those who can run away and get something of the same kind. My aunt and I lived in a room on the fifth floor of an old brick house in one of the back streets. They were all poor people in the house, and I found the children very different from those in the country. They were not religious. The boys swore and smoke, even little ones of my own age, and the girls knew all sorts of bad things. There was no place to play but in the streets, and for a time I was very homesick. The other children laughed at me, but they were not altogether bad. They were good-natured in their way. Most of them had never been in the country, and they thought I was telling stories when I described the forest, where you could walk for miles and see nothing but the trees. Some of these children belonged to people who beat them, and a few had hardly any clothes. My aunt used to pity them so much, and in the evening she taught me dressmaking by making things for those children. She taught me measuring, cutting out, basting, and stitching. In the daytime I went to school. Mother sent aunt some money to help keep me, and as I had a natural love for dressmaking, I got along. In the afternoons when the school was over and before my aunt returned from her work, I used to go and see all the beautiful things in the museums and art galleries. I was with my aunt learning all she could teach till I was 14 years of age, which was in 1895. I was quite a well-grown girl then, and my aunt was going to get me employment in the place where she worked when she died of a heavy cold, pneumonia, I suppose. After she caught the cold, she went to work and grew worse, but she wouldn't stop for two days. On the third day, she was in a high fever and so dizzy that she could not stand when she rose from bed. I got her some medicine, but I did not know what to ask for, and the druggist did not know exactly what to give. It did no good. So at last I called in a doctor, but she grew worse very fast and seemed choking. Some of the neighbors sat up with her in the early part of the night, but at three o'clock in the morning I was the only watcher. My aunt, who had been breathing very heavily and seemed unconscious, suddenly sat up in bed with their eyes staring. She was frightened and began to cry. I'm dying, she said, and I'm not fit to die. I've been so wicked. I spoke to her and held her hands, but I could not comfort her. You're not dying, and you have not been wicked, I said. Oh, oh, I've been so wicked, she cried again and again. I declared that she had done nothing wrong. But she answered, those clothes that I made for the poor children. I stole all the goods from our customers because I could not bear to see the little ones in such a state. Oh, it was very bad. If I wanted to give the children something, it should have been my own. I was so frightened that I called up the people who lived in the next room, and one of them went for the priest, and after he had talked with my aunt for a few minutes, she seemed comforted, but she died the next morning. I went back to my mother's house for two weeks, but I could not stay there, so I returned to Paris, where I went to work in the shop that had employed my aunt. Many of our best customers were Americans. They were all very rich, and we heard that everybody in America was rich. They drove up to the shop in carriages and automobiles, and they wanted dresses like those of the queens and princesses. Some of them spent whole weeks in our shop. Part of the time, I had to help try on and heard a great deal of the conversation of these ladies. It was all about dress and money. They said that Paris was just like their idea of heaven, though the ones who said that had seen very little except our shop. They were mostly daughters of working people, common laborers, butchers, and shopkeepers who had grown rich some way. Yet they were more haughty and proud than our own aristocrats. In fact, they were pretending to be aristocrats. 
I remember one of this sort who declared that she hated America because it was a republic and contained so many common people. She was sorry that France was a republic and hoped it would again soon have a king. Our forewoman always agreed with all the customers, and she agreed with this one until her back was turned. Then she said, What a fool that woman is. She is coarse enough for the fish market, yet she thinks she can make people believe she's an aristocrat. I wonder what she is proud of. Most of the Americans I disliked, but there were a few of a different sort. One very beautiful tall girl whose father owned 10,000 miles of telegraph wires and something like $40 million was as gentle, simple, and pleasant as if she had been poor. She smiled at me when I was helping her to try on a new dress and said, What good taste you have. If one as clever as you came to America, she could do very well. I had been for a long time thinking that same thing. If the Americans whom I had seen could have so much money, why not I? I said that to Annette, my roommate, and she also wanted to go to America. Of course, it was all on account of the money, as there is no country like France and no city like Paris. We heard that some dressmakers in America received as much as a 100 francs for a week's work. That seemed to me a great fortune. By working at night, Annette and I saved 300 francs, but it was stolen from our room, and we had to begin all over again. That was the reason why we did not reach America till 1899. We saved and saved, and we pinched ourselves hard, but it takes a long time for two sewing girls in Paris to scrape together 500 francs, and we could not start with less because we wanted to have some money in our pockets when we landed. It was in September when we started. I had never seen the ocean before, and the voyage was all strange. When we approached America, a man came to us and asked how much money we had. We showed him 40 francs. Oh, that's not enough, he said. You'll be sent back. No one is allowed to land in America unless he has a hundred francs. We were dreadfully frightened. But the man said that if we gave him 20 francs, he would lend each of us $50 till we passed through the immigrant's gate and got into the city of New York. We gave him 20 francs and he gave each of us a $50 bill. But... Will they not think it strange that I and Annette have each a $50 bill in American money, I asked? Not at all, he said. American money is now good all over the world. When we reached the immigrants' gate, however, the men there told us that the $50 bills were no good. They were what is called confederate. The man who had given them to us had slipped away. We would have been sent back to France if some other immigrants had not taken pity on us and lent us some money. Oh, how glad we were to get away from that place and into the city. We landed in a sort of park, and a good woman, who was one of those who helped us, treated us to peaches and popcorn. The peaches were the largest and ripest I ever ate. They fairly melted in our mouths. A car took us to a private place in South Fifth Avenue, where there are many French people. We were horrified when we found that we must pay two dollars a week for a miserable room, but we could do no better. We had only ten francs left. And all the first week after our landing, we lived on potatoes that we roasted over the gas flame and stale bread. The woman who kept the house walked about in the passage smelling the air and saying that someone was cooking in one of the bedrooms, but she did not find us out. It was a horrible place. Most of the people in it seemed to be mad. They made such awful noises in the night, singing, shouting, banging pianos, dancing and quarreling. The partition that separated our room from the one next to it was thin and there was a hole in it, through which a man once peeped. He talked at us, but we nailed a piece of tin over the hole. And as for his talk, we never answered it. I don't think that that house had been dusted or swept in six months. The servants looked most untidy. Most of the women lodgers slept till noon each day and then walked about the passages wearing old wrappers. 
Their hair was done up in curl papers, and their faces were covered with a white paste to improve their complexions. They looked hideous till they washed themselves later in the day. They were all married women, who had no children and nothing to do but gad about. Each day after our arrival in New York, we wandered about the streets looking for work, but we did not know where to look and had no luck. We could not speak English, and that made it very hard. We might have starved, but that Annette made two dollars posing for an artist whom she met quite by chance. He had been in Paris, and he knew immediately that she was French. He saw by the way she looked at the shop signs that she was strange to the city, and he spoke to her in French. Of course she answered, and they became acquainted. How did you know I was French, she asked, and he answered, A French girl, ah, how could I mistake you for one of another nation? That is the truth, too. Though I say it myself, all the world knows that we French have the true artistic taste, and we show it most in our dress. The Germans or the English cannot make dresses or hats, and even when we make for them, they cannot wear the clothes properly. There's something wrong somewhere, probably with the color scheme. Those other people do not understand. They cannot comprehend. It is impossible to convey to them the conception of true harmony. It is like trying to teach the blind about light. They lack the soul of the artist, and so their dresses are shocking, hideous discords of form and color. When I see them, I simply want to scream. Berlin has lately been trying to make fashions of her own. Pah, poo, what presumption. Annette is tall and fair, while I am dark and not more than medium height. The artist posed her as a Venetian flower girl with bare feet. I saw the picture lately hanging in a great gallery. It is very beautiful and exactly like Annette, though she always says that I am the beauty. Of course, that is not true. After we had been for eight days looking for work without finding any, we spoke to the woman who kept the house where we lived. She knew a little French. I think I can get you situations, she said, but they'll cost you ten dollars for each. I told her that we had no money. No matter, said she. You can pay me after you are paid, and I will then pay the forewoman. But you must not say anything to her about paying because the proprietor does not know about it. The next day we went with the woman to a Sixth Avenue dressmaker, where we were engaged at $7 a week each, which seemed to us good pay. We had to give the woman of our house $5 a week each for two weeks, and as we paid $1 a week each for our room, we nearly starved trying to live on the remainder. At the end of the two weeks, we were discharged by the forewoman, though there was plenty of work. I learned afterward that the forewoman made a great deal of money that way by receiving pay for hiring girls whom she afterward discharged. We seemed to be in a worse state than ever and cried all night after we were sent away from the Sixth Avenue place. But at six o'clock in the next morning, we rose and said long prayers, and I wrote a sort of letter to be shown. It said this, Madame, please to behold us as two girls who have of Paris the art dressmaker from the best models taken to make the dress for the American. We will comprehend so well if you but try, if you please, Annette Amelia. I wrote that because I could take time and use the correct language. As I had found when I spoke the English, Americans did not understand. We hurried into the street having no breakfast, but full of hope, for it was the season of dressmaking and we surely must get something. We entered a fine place on 23rd Street, and a man behind a counter sent us upstairs, where we found 20 women engaged. The proprietress read my letter and asked us questions. She did not seem to understand well and called a German girl who spoke French. At all my life hated Germans, but I could not hate this girl as she spoke to us so kindly. I told her where we had experience and what we could do, and she said to the proprietress, We must have these, Miss G. 
They come from the best place in Paris and look clever. Nonsense, said the proprietress. We don't want them. They are mere apprentices. I understood what she meant and said in French that we were not apprentices, but of long experience, and Annette too joining in. But the proprietress was only pretending. She wanted us all the time. So at last she said, but how much money would you want? Seven dollars a week, said I, because I thought I might as well ask for plenty. The proprietress almost screamed. Seven dollars a week and you have just landed? Oh no, I said, we have been here nearly a month. At last we were engaged at six dollars a week each and they put us at work immediately. Our hours were from eight o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the evening. When we went home that night, we were very happy and treated ourselves to a little feast in our room. On six dollars a week, we knew that we could live finely, and we felt sure that we could keep this place, as they had put us on good work at once, and we knew that we had done well. Our proprietress was full of tricks. In appearance, she was a tall, thin, sharp-faced woman with fair hair. She was very quick in speech and action, and a great driver among the girls. She did all the measuring and cutting out, and her perquisites included all the materials that were left over from the dresses. A tall woman would need 17 yards of silk or other narrow goods, while one who was shorter might get along very well with 14 yards. Our proprietress would always exaggerate the amount of material needed and then, in cutting out, would be able to reserve some for herself. Often she got as much as two yards. These pieces she slipped into a private drawer, of which she had the key. It did not take her long, therefore, to get enough to make herself a new skirt or a waist, and odd pieces could be used as piping or as trimming for hats. Accordingly, she was always very well dressed, and sometimes customers recognized parts of their own materials in her costume. They seldom said anything. Accordingly, she was always very well dressed, and though sometimes customers recognized parts of their own materials in her costume, they seldom said anything. Once, though, I thought there was going to be a scene. A stout lady who was one of our best customers came in one day and saw our proprietress just going out to lunch. The stout lady immediately stood still and glared at the proprietress's new hat, which was on her head. It was a very stylish hat, and the silk trimming was precisely the same as the piping of the lady's dress that had recently been made at our place. Why, you've got my piping, she cried. The proprietress flushed and smiled, but she was equal to the occasion. Yes, Mrs. Miller, she said, it's the very same as yours. The truth truth is I admired the material so much I sent out and bought some. Don't you like my hat? Oh, yes, said the stout lady. Where did you get that material? This was a catch, because there was only one store in town where it could have been bought. But our proprietress was not to be trapped. Oh, one of my girls got it for me. I don't know where she got it, she said. Humph, explained the stout lady, and she wandered away without another word. She came back later on and gave us more custom. She knew that she was being robbed, but she knew also that it was the dressmaker's rule to keep themselves from the customer's materials. On another occasion, a lady who had given five yards of wide ribbon for trimming came back after she had received the dress. I don't understand how it is, Miss Blank, she said. I gave you five yards of this ribbon. There's only four yards on the dress. I measured it with the tape measure. The proprietress produced the tape measure and gravely measured the trimming. Dear me, you're right, she exclaimed. Now what could have happened to the other yard? Where can it be? Girls, did you see it any place? The customer just sniffed. We all buzzed about, but it was the proprietress herself who had found the missing ribbon, under a pile of goods. She appeared to be greatly surprised, and the customer sniffed again. Our proprietress, I think, never told the truth while she was at business. 
She would promise most solemnly to have a dress made up in three days when she knew quite well that it would be done in two weeks. Sometimes when the bell rang, she would look out and say, Oh, girls, there's Mrs. K. Come again. I promised for sure that her dress would be ready to try on this afternoon, and I haven't put the scissors to it yet. Run down, Katie, and keep her in the parlor. Then she would rush at the goods and the pattern, cut out with lighting, lightning speed, and toss the various parts of, to different girls to baste. In half an hour, there was the dress, basted, ready to try on, and the customer none the wiser as to how it was done. Some of our customers suffered greatly in their efforts to be fashionable, for fashion takes no account of the natural shape of the human body. It did not matter so much to the thin women, because all they had to do was to stuff their figures, but some of the stout women were martyrs. One very beautiful woman was fat and would not acknowledge it, as she had been quite slim. My waist measure, she said, is 24 inches. She insisted on this and made two of us girls pull our corset strings till we secured the right girth. My, what a job! The squeezing must have hurt her awfully. She was gasping for breath and perspiring rivers, but she would not give up. When we sent the dress home, she brought it back. It doesn't fit, she said. Where? asked the proprietress. The waist is too small. The waist is 24 inches. You gave that yourself as your measurement. All you have to do is have your corsets tightened as they were on the day you were measured. The poor lady looked at us and we all nodded assent. We had heard her insist that 24 was her measurement. Soon she was again in the hands of the tighteners, gasping and perspiring. When the corsets were all pulled in, the dress fitted like a glove, but the poor lady's face was the color of blood and she could hardly speak. I, I must have been mistaken, she gasped. Certainly, said our proprietress. I never saw a better fit. The poor lady staggered away, trying to look comfortable. I don't believe she could wear that dress, though, as she was growing stouter. The only thing to be done for stout people is to make everything plain, avoid bright colors, and have all lines running up and down. That gives the appearance of greater height and less skirth. Lines running up and down make short women look taller. As to tall women, they don't want to look shorter now. It's the fashion to be tall. The plump, cozy little woman is out of date. The first thing that I and Annette did when we began to have a little money was to move away from the horrible place in South Fifth Avenue. We never could understand those people. Most of them were connected with the theaters, and they kept hours that seemed crazy. We got a room in West 24th Street for $3 a week, a very good room, too, and made arrangements with a restaurant to give us breakfast and supper for two fifty a week. So our starvation was at an end, and we had $2 a week to do with as we pleased. In a few weeks, we had good clothing, and after that, we were able to save a little. And it came to me one day with her eyes as big as saucers. What do you think, she said. That girl Rosa gets $12 a week, and she's not as clever as us. We are both very angry at Rosa, though I suppose it's not her fault. Still, she had no right to get more. It was ridiculous. We were the better work women. Wait, said I. We are learning the English. We waited six months, and then asked the proprietress to give us $12 a week. She screamed at us with rage. What impudence, she said. But we only smiled. We knew enough of the English now, and we were not afraid. So she gave us $9 a week each, and we stayed there six months more. Then, when the holiday season was coming on, we went to a great dressmaking place in Fifth Avenue and told the proprietress about our Paris experience and where we were now working. She asked how much we were getting, and we said $18 a week. That was true, too, because each of us got $9. We would not tell what was not true. The proprietress said, Well, if they give you $18 a week in 23rd Street, we'll give you $20 a week here. 
When we told the proprietress of the 23rd Street shop, she screamed again and said that we could not go, that she would give us a bad character. We said it was no matter. We would not ask the character from her. Then she cried and said that we had ingratitude and she would give us $12 a week each. We cried, too, because after all, she was not such a bad one to work for. But we had to go, as it was too much money that we wanted for staying. So we began in Fifth Avenue, and now it was quite new, the sort of trade. We have been in that place ever since. We have been in the very finest houses of New York, talking with all the beauties and trying on their dresses for them. The girls here are very beautiful, but I cannot like them. They have not the heart of French women. All that is given to them they take as their due, and they are not grateful. They love, but it is only themselves. They do not care for men except to have them as slaves, bringing them the money that they so much need. For fine dress, they will do anything. I have told of the tricks that dressmakers play on ladies, but they are no worse than those that ladies play on dressmakers and on other people. In the first place, many of them won't pay their bills. In the second place, they get costumes made and delivered that they wear one night and then return, saying that they have changed their minds or that the costume doesn't fit. They deny that they have worn it, except to try it on. They get $50 or $100 cash and have it charged as a dress or hats in the bills so as to deceive their husbands. They are finicky, and one thing's changed because their minds have changed. They expect us to remake them in spite of nature. All the fat women insist that we shall make them look thin. Then, if they quarrel with us, they use slander. One of our customers, a very sweet little lady who is quite wealthy, said the other day to our proprietress, How have you offended Mrs. L? Have I offended her? The proprietress asked. It seemed so. I was walking with her on the street the other day when she passed. You bowed to me and I responded when Mrs. L said, Oh, do you know that person? Why, yes, said I, that's my dressmaker. Indeed, said she. How can you stand her? She fits so badly. I've always, I've always found her a true artist, said I. Our proprietress was very angry when she heard the story. Now I'll tell you the whole truth, she said. That woman owes me $850, and it would be more than a 1000 but the last costume I sent COD. My husband is not home, and I have no money, said she to the girl. The girl, in spite of her protests, brought the costume away. She came to me and said, I have to wear that costume this evening. I'm going to the ball. Then you must pay for it, said I. But I have not the money, and my husband is away. Get the money, said I. She did get it, and I gave her the costume, but she had slandered me ever since. Ah, it is a good country to work in, no doubt. Annette is now getting $40 a week, and I almost as much. We have plenty saved. But I'm not going to live here. To one born in England, Germany, Austria, Holland, or Scandinavia, this may appear fine. But not so to the French. There is but one France, and only one Paris, in all the world. And soon, very soon, Annette and I will be aboard some great ship that will bear us back there. I hope you enjoyed Amelia's story as much as I did. I, I, I found her to be a strong, proud woman who understood her worth and was willing to fight for what she thought she deserved. And she was born in the countryside in France and ended up in some of the top fashion houses in Paris and New York. And I, I really find her reflections on the fashion industry um, fun and in some cases funny you know talking about how the French designers change fashions as quickly as possible so that women will spend money 
and that they you know, give their clothes to beautiful, famous people so that those people will wear the clothes out and other people will see them and want to buy them. That, that feels very, very much like how fashion designers promote things today, you know, giving their, their products to the rich and famous. You know, the proprietress of the, the shop in New York who takes a little bit off of everybody's order so that she has fabric for her own clothes. You know, the, the customers trying to, to cheat the proprietress. You know, all of that is, is fun. At the same time, though, I, I find Amelia's story itself really interesting. You know, that this young woman who was pretty much on her own in Paris at the age of 14 managed to save the money to go to the U.S. not once but twice because someone stole her money. She was cheated on the boat on the way over to the U.S. She was cheated by a landlord and the four, you know, the four women at the um, place where she first worked, that she starved the first week, but she persevered and she understood her worth and, you know, did what she needed to do to, to not just survive, but to thrive, you know, that by the time she's ready to go back to Paris, you know, she and her friend are making, well, her friend is making $40 a week. She's making nearly that amount. That's a, a really good wage for someone in, uh, not just someone, but a woman in 1906. So um, really enjoyed Amelia's story. And, you know, for those of you who are following our podcast, we're going to have one or two more stories from this anthology. And then we are going to move on to stories about what life was like in the South around the same time in the early 20th century, talking about sharecropping and and a few other things. So I hope you enjoyed this and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks.